0: This is the Field Goals podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and I am joined by Maddie Brown, and we're talking about the Seahawks' 25 to 19 loss in Week Two of the preseason to the Minnesota Vikings. Maddie,
1: how you doing? Thanks for having me on as well. I'm very excited to talk about what was a thrilling week 2 preseason game against the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> yes, th- heavy sarcasm
0: on the thrilling because well the the really the best part of the game was the fact that we did get to see Russell Wilson on the field uh, early on. He, he completed 6 passes of 9 attempts for 82 yards and when you compare that to what we saw from Paxton Lynch, Russell Wilson's still the leading passer just in the limited time that he was on the field, but I think for a lot of Seahawks fans, we looked at what we saw from Russell and we, we saw the dialed in Russell Wilson that we're used to seeing.
1: Right. He looked really good. Um, he had that helmet cam on as well. unfortunately we didn't get to see that actually in action during the game, but he looked, he looked very comfortable. Uh, Brian Schottenheimer also much criticized and some of it very well deserved, but he seemed to give him some interesting passing concepts. Um, there's been a lot of footage in the preseason of wide receivers running from stacks where one receiver's in front of the other. And there was that nice Tyler Lockett catch on third and five, which makes him a bizarrely challenge as being out of bounds, but it was a classic sort of Doug Baldwin-esque toe drag. But Lockett's catch from that stack receiver set was beautiful and a really nice way for Schottenheimer to create separation on that. And there was also a lot of shotgun stuff for Wilson where he seemed to have a bubble screen uh, bubble screen run pass option uh, or he had like the zone reads which was like a post snap run pass option and that was really nice to see too so Schottenheimer even in the preseason uh, Shorty's given Russ chances to to flash his stuff and uh, yeah promising signs for the, for the actual football
0: Well and that's one of the things that we've heard from Schottenheimer in some of the press conferences throughout the offseason and going into year two is that He feels like the offense is so much farther along than it was this time last year. And of course, you know, he hadn't had all the time that uh, it was in its relative uh, infancy, I guess you could say, the the offense. Although I think we can look at just the past years of the system. It it seems like more of a Pete Carroll offensive system. But now that Schottenheimer maybe has had that time to really understand what Pete Carroll wants, it,
1: it, it seems like. Maybe we can expect more this year. Right. I think, I actually think a good comparison is between the offense Wilson's running in the preseason, which is obviously very basic and watered down, and then the offense that Paxton Lynch and Geno Smith in week one was given. Because you can see how, even in the very vanilla, bland, boring preseason scheme, the Wilson offense has, you know, that bit more of these guys have worked together for two years, Wilson is clearly the superior talent. And you're starting to see that the Wilson offense, it, it does seem to have a bit more understanding to it. There is definitely a bit more, you know, th- these guys, Shotty and Wilson, they're getting on a bit better. They've had a year working together. And really in a second year of an offensive coordinator, there does tend to be a, a trend of improvement. Uh, in the first year of an offensive coordinator in offenses, you do tend to see that there's a, a trend of regression from, the year previous, you know, was there's growing pains. We didn't get that with Schottenheimer. And now in the second season, hopefully we'll see further uh, building on that and improvement. Well, one guy that we were looking
0: for improvement from is Tyler Lockett, expected to take over that number one role from Doug Baldwin. And you mentioned that, that Baldwin-esque uh, toe tap on the sideline and we don't get all the cameras in the preseason like we do in the regular season. So we we may not be able to know for sure if that was as amazing catch as it looked like, you know, they called it obviously a catch. So I think one of those questions we we're looking to answer is, especially with Tyler Lockett moving and, and taking more of those uh, slot receiver roles that Doug Baldwin had. He looked he naturally looked the position. And now I I can be almost sure that he's going to be the the fill in that doug baldwin role uh wonderfully
1: right that's that's a really good point actually uh there's actually a great picture on the seahawks twitter of uh lockett's toe drag and there's a a sideline assistant or something with a wonderful collection of colorful pens but he's doing a sort of visibly shocked reaction his face you (laughs) know tells it all uh it's a fabulous picture uh yeah lock it in the slot it's going to be really interesting to see like you said he's he's clearly taken to it well a lot of the routes he ran last year were sort of slot in style so he'd run he'd be lined up outside but he'd still be running an over route which is exactly what he'll do from the slot too it's just working on as he himself said in the offseason working on his releases and how you face a different type of defender in the slot often but yeah I think With Lockett and his ability to line up outside or inside, Seattle can sort of pick the best matchup for him. When Lockett's in the slot, they'll probably put a bigger guy like Jaron Brown outside, or maybe we'll get DK Metcalf outside. But if Lockett's outside, then maybe if uh, John Urshua continues to impress, he gets stuck uh, in the slot, and you get a more quick-to-separate type in the slot, and Lockett speed outside. So like I said, they can pick the best matchups they want. They can play matchup football.
0: Yeah, possibly some flexibility there. And the unfortunate part, we didn't get to see DK Metcalf in that second week game against the Vikings. Sounds like he's going to have surgery. Uh, We don't know quite how long he'll be out, maybe back for the first game against the Bengals. I know Pete Carroll's always so optimistic. It's hard to tell uh, what any kind of timeline in terms of injuries, but one guy that we did get to see that we didn't get to see in week one, Jerron Brown had two catches, 52 yards and on, and that was on three targets and that, uh, that was the leading pass catcher for the team against the Vikings.
1: Yeah. So firstly on, on Metcalf, it was very weird how uh, vague uh, Pete Carroll was on that. Um, but anyway, at least he didn't use the word legit with that or bad. or anything like that. Nothing too scary. So hopefully week one, if not, you, you know, he's he's clearly not too severe. Pete didn't look too concerned or sound too concerned, even if he is an optimistic character. Uh, as to uh, Jalen Brown, there, there was that catch he had on, I think it was a middle of the field open defense. So there wasn't a middle third safety closing the middle of the field the cornerback or defensive back covering him vertically and squared up as though he was going to break to the mid open middle of the field and then broke across the middle of the field right to the sideline on a on an over route and was wide open for, uh, to haul in the pass and that was excellent he did have a disappointing drop on a i think it was the it was a third down and the vikings sent a ton of pressure man to man wilson found the open jaron brown he'd done well to separate again in a similar style on a crossing route but he couldn't quite haul it in it was thrown a bit high wilson with pressure in his face but it looked like brown slightly mistimed his jump but overall impressive stuff and he keeps getting hype from brian schottenheimer and a lot of people wondered if that was lip service maybe you know other rookies could take a spot but it looks like the talk of using him more could actually materialize and it could be for the good, you know, he's a veteran, he knows how to get open. And he showed that last night.
0: I do feel like while we're talking about receivers that Jerron Brown, Tyler Lockett, and I, you could throw in DK Metcalf and I think David Moore, I think those four guys are locked in and it's really who they're going to fill out at that number five spot. Will they go to six? Will they even go to seven and stash a guy on as part of their There are guys who are healthy scratches every week, similar to how they did uh, David Moore and carried him on the 53 man roster toward the end of the season, uh, his rookie year. Uh, What are your thoughts on what you've seen from the receivers so far? Would they, you think they'll go six or could they carry another one?
1: It was 2014 when they carried seven wide receivers. I think I'm correcting saying that. And I, I think you'd have to have a guy who's going to contribute on special teams, you know, Special teams this preseason has looked massively improved. But if you're going to make it onto the roster as a seventh wide receiver, you're basically going to be that um, 53rd guy, uh, if you like, or 46th guy, I suppose, if you're making the, the active roster as a, a stud special teamer. And the problems with that is I don't see uh, a guy like Jazz Ferguson, big target. His profile doesn't really translate to special teams. There's no way you could really put him. He's not um, heavy enough to contribute on the inside of punt work, really. And he's not sort of agile enough or nimble enough to play on the outside as a punt gunner sort of thing. Mm. So his his fit is is quite questionable. So he basically has to be perfect as a receiver. And he had a patchy night last night. Uh, a guy like John Urshua, who's shown some really nice stuff, uh, returning punts, and again, is a slot type. Uh, there's not really... Um, I mean, his direct competition is Keenan Reynolds, but um, I think Reynolds is more expendable than, say, uh, Ferguson's competition, which is DK Metcalf, and they're both a very similar profile, whereas Ursu with his contributions on special teams, is more likely, I'd say, to make the team uh, because of that. And also, he, you know, he's shown some nice stuff too, let's not forget.
0: Yeah, Jazz Ferguson, seven targets, only two catches, 24 yards against the Vikings. So... Uh, rough night and he also had the, and the fumble, drop right at the end of the game
1: yeah the fumble which led to um was it it was i think duke thomas he he forced the fumble of jazz ferguson he then ran away celebrating while guys like joey hunt hustled downfield and seattle ended up recovering it which was hilarious um <laughs> but uh yeah ferguson i think like i said he he has to be almost flawless because uh He's not going to be uh, contributing much on special teams. So he has to show that he can dominate in all facets of, you know, playing on offense. And he had a, a patchy night. While that may sound harsh, he's he clearly wasn't factored in as being on the roster uh, at the start. He was just in to compete. And, uh, and now it, it looks less likely, I'd say.
0: It's leading me to believe that he may be this year's case and Williams, a, a guy that people get excited about uh, only to be cut down to the 53 man roster. And and you were correct. 2014 was the one year under Pete Carroll's time where they did carry seven wide receivers. That's thanks to John Gilbert's article on field goals, where he had that roster breakdown position by position since 2010.
1: Do you, do you have a list of those guys? Because I'd be really interested in the sort of, you know, b- bottom bottom two of three. So the
0: seven wide receivers uh, from 2014, you had the the four guys who were really locked in Percy Harvin, Doug Baldwin, Jermaine Curse and Paul Richardson, who was their second round pick that year. And then the three guys after were Kevin Norwood, who was their fourth round pick that year, I believe you had Ricardo Lockett and then you had Phil Bates. So (laughs) Phil Bates at number seven, probably a guy nobody remembers anymore.
1: Right, and I think Lockett, special team stud, uh, I, think yes. he, I think he made a pro bowl or all pro for his special teams work. Absolutely amazing gunner. Cam Chancellor recently shouted him out on Twitter comparing Ugo Amadi's hit, which we'll get to, uh, to Lockett. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I think Phil Bates, they really liked something he did in special teams as well. He was a guy they got enamored with over athletic traits. And then I think Norwood as well managed to show some stuff on special teams in addition to being a... Uh, fourth round uh, wide receiver pick that year. But yeah, like, like I said, you've got to contribute on special teams. And I just don't see how Ferguson does that. Uh, I could definitely see a path to them carrying uh, six wide receivers, though, especially with Ursula's contributions there. And Gary Jennings, a guy who they picked in the fourth round this year, he just seems, he's not what I expected at all. I did a write-up at field goals, a Seahawks on tape, as I call it, article where, you know, I looked at his game and yes, he's coming from a West Virginia offense, which is air it out. Everyone's in the spread out. And yes, he played in the slot over 80% of the time and didn't face press coverage pretty much at all. Yet he just really hasn't, he's really struggled. And yet his game in college was full of physicality, height, weight, speed. He could separate at the catch point. He could win leverage throughout the route. And we just haven't seen much of that. He he had one target or two targets, I think, in the first game. Anonymous in this game, and at this point, is you know, it's ominous. It's ominously anonymous because <laughs> I don't know what. Yeah, if they were going to cut a draft pick, I think so far you could say he'd be the guy. It might be a
0: coin flip between him and Keenan Reynolds if you're going six.
1: Yeah, and maybe because they know what Keenan Reynolds is, and Keenan Reynolds hasn't shown that much, maybe they decide to go with more upside of Gary Jennings. I don't think Keenan Reynolds is practice squad eligible anymore, so that would be the the final goodbye to him. Right. But it, it, supposedly he, you know, you see the odd tweet about how he seems to have established a connection with Russell Wilson in camp from the beat reporters, and then you just have never quite seen it play out like that, but. I'd love to see someone like um, John Urshua get opportunities with Russell Wilson and maybe week three of the preseason will be his chance when the starters uh, and Russell Wilson will play uh, even longer. See, I've long said
0: that Keenan Reynolds, you keep him on the roster and you have your backup quarterback you because you know, Gino Smith. Okay. Yeah. I guess he's the safe pick at this point uh, because I know that for Seahawks fans, what we saw from Paxton Lynch against the Vikings, we can, we can sufficiently say that, okay, he was going up against third and four stringers against the Broncos. It was his former team. That's what had him motivated. And now he goes six of 15 for 67 yards. And he looked like the Paxton Lynch. I feel like we've known for his first couple of years in the NFL.
1: Yeah. The, Lynch was rough, uh, and I can see why. Keenan Reynolds, Navy quarterback, let's just get the Seahawks in the wishbone. Let's run the triple option. Let's run pound the triple up. option. <laughs> Schottenheim will love it. Carroll will love it. Ball control. Uh, <laughs> I think the triple option can be a bit more complicated than that and requires a commitment, of course. But having watched Lynch yesterday when they were clearly trying to see if he could throw on the run more... Uh, he couldn't. And obviously, what can Russell Wilson do well? He throws on the run brilliantly. A lot of the concepts and play-action concepts require the quarterback to throw while on the move. And Lynch really, really struggled. And I, I, I tweeted after the Broncos game that he's a quarterback clearly affected by uh, confidence, even more so than typical. You, you like your players, especially a quarterback, to have a short-term memory. Don't think Lynch does that. have that, really. I mean, like you said, he was he was it was awful to watch. Uh, that was classic preseason quarterback play last night. In stark contrast to the Vikings, he seemed to have you know, that slaughter guy. Oh, my gosh. He was he was he was unbelievable.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, between him and Sean Mannion, they look like they actually have legit uh, <laughs> options at quarterback as their backup. Must be nice. If there is one thing that we can say about Paxton Lynch, uh, a positive takeaway is that his two attempts for negative one yard is oh. better than Rashad Penny's uh, six attempts for negative two yards.
1: Uh, very nice segue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Penny, Penny's a really interesting case because when they drafted him, John Schneider said uh, he quoted some PFF uh, yak or rack yards after contact, yes. yards after contact, whatever st- metric where he, you know, he led the nation in yak. And I thought, well, that's all well and good, but that metric for me is very flawed because it could literally be a fingernail touching the running back on the way through a gaping hole and that would count as, oh, he just busted a 59-yard run. That's 59 yards of yak. you know. For me, how do you define contact? There's got to be varying degrees of contact and that that metric doesn't account for that as far as I know. Uh, So that seemed flawed. And because watching his game in college, there was a lot of him going down rather easily. He, he's not very agile. He, he doesn't really see holes that well, and a lot of his runs at San Diego State, which by the way he lost the job to uh, Donnell Pumphrey there, he couldn't beat out Donnell Pumphrey the year before. A lot of a lot of his big runs were just huge holes, um, and he just isn't agile, and he needs space. He, and I, I said he needs a runway. And his best runs last year were. Crazy plays where he'd cut it back, defying all wisdom. And somehow his speed would just get him around the corner and he'd suddenly he'd get a massive gain. But that's not sustainable. Well, he contrasts
0: that with what we saw from Chris Carson being back in the lineup. Five carries, 25 yards. And we got to see Travis Homer for the first time. Four carries, 16 yards. Homer seems to have a, a, a running style that's much more like Chris Carson, where he's not afraid to initiate contact
1: right even Xavier Turner who's barely been on the roster um yeah and he, he's he's not going to make the roster I don't think he faces a massive path maybe he could make the practice squad but he has a low It'll center be. of gravity and north south uh forward style it's super effective especially against the third strings of the preseason Homer looked interesting looked really quite twitchy and dynamic which is what we expected w- would definitely like to see him given a, a few more carries uh and fully open up seemed like he he didn't really get a chance to properly go. And like you said, Carson is just he's underrated. He is really underrated. He does get a lot of opportunities, of course, in this offense. But you shouldn't ding him for that. He makes really good stuff out of that. He reads stuff so well. Again, he's just got the, that vision and contact balance which Penny just doesn't seem to have. And while direct comparisons are unfair, when the Seahawks are talking about it being almost a one one-two punch split. I, That really does feel like a trope almost at this stage.
0: To give Penny just a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, most of the runs that he had were with the second team and a lot of those offensive linemen getting blown up. He was getting tackled in the backfield. So I would like to see more of Penny perhaps behind that starting offensive line. And and maybe we'll get more of that in the game upcoming against the Los Angeles Chargers.
1: Yeah, I do agree. The, The second string offensive line was pretty poor. I feel sorry for Demetrius Knox. Um, he got hurt again, carted off. And that's gut wrenching for a man who was recovering from a list Frank injury that he suffered at a high state and you you know, you do root for someone like that. But the second string offensive line just looked terrible. And the criticisms of Penny can still exist uh even in the world of the second string offensive line wasn't good. I would, like you said, like see him with the first string offensive line, which seemed to be amazing and wow, it's nice to have an offensive line which isn't, you know, the top list of your podcast schedule is, oh my word, what are we going to do? Russell Wilson might die this year. How's he going to survive? Uh, it's really nice to have Mike Solari having coached up and, yeah. you know, John Schneider been aggressive about getting talent like Dwayne Brown onto the line and the line actually functioning. So, yes, I'd like to see Penny given those outside handoffs with the first string offensive line, given that clear daylight to hit and you know maybe we just have to wait for actual football to start to see that I'm, I'm sure that'll be the case when we get to meaningful games
0: well maddie let's take a quick break come back and you mentioned a little bit of ugo Amadi on special teams let's talk special teams and the defense coming up right after the break Matty Brown of FieldGoals.com joining me to recap the Seahawks 19 to 25 loss to the Vikings. Vikings go to 2-0 in the preseason. The Seahawks now 1-1. And one of the biggest highlights to come out of the game, Maddie, you mentioned it earlier on special teams that Michael Dixon punt and Ugo Amati timing up perfectly and just crushing the Vikings punt returner in this game.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, That was so awesome. Charles Davis did a great job on the broadcast, I thought, for the the majority of the night. And he really covered that play well, showing a Maddy. He fought through the double team as a punt gunner, running downfield. He timed the hit perfectly on the returner because it would be so easy to be a fraction early, get the flag, get a 15-yard penalty, get them reviewing you for ejection. But no, he timed it perfectly. And then he went eyes through the thighs, head up, shoulder contact, near shoulder as well head well out of the way and up, wrap the thighs and actually rock the return down, showing that you can still hit hard with a near foot, near shoulder strike. And that was just perfect. That would be, that's teaching tape for any special teamer It's teaching tape for any defender trying to make a tackle. And the NFL should be using that as a, this is how you can still hit people hard in the NFL where we're not going to, we're going to take the head out of the game. And uh, you know, that was just absolutely perfect and a really good effort. And again, an off-season theme to all of the uh, John Schneider and Pete Carroll press conferences has been stressing the importance of improving special teams. The uh, special teams coordinator, Brian Schneider, has come under a lot of fire. And I do think there has been a lot of disasters uh, over the, the recent years, but, This year, it seems like their drafting theme of getting special teams talent and speed on the field, it seems to be paying off because that Amadi hit was amazing. And also, every special teams play, it just seems that guys are flying downfield. I don't claim to know much about special teams scheme, so I'm not sure how watered down the protection is in the preseason, like it is for offense and defense, but still... The guys, the speed going downfield and then instant dropping of the returner. there's not many big returns. And that's so impressive to see. And Pete Carroll will love that because it's something I know he wanted to, you know, he's clearly stated that he wanted to improve that. And they seem to have done a good job. And well played to
0: Omadi. Well, it does seem like going into some of these off seasons. That Pete Carroll usually points at one area that he really wants to emphasize. You know, think back to the 2012 season where they lost to the Falcons and pass rush was such an issue. They go out and they get Cliff Averill, they get Michael Bennett. They have a top pass rush in 2013 and then last year or going into last year with so many injuries in the run game. And run game being the focus, they come back and they're number one in the NFL in terms of their rushing attack. And then this year he had some criticism of special teams. And so now it seems like that's been the focus. That was their draft strategy to find guys who were gifted in special teams. Amadi on the coverage, but also a punt return. You know, He had the two punts. Uh, he, he had one return for 17 yards and you have other guys like Travis Homer, a you know, special teams guy, Ben and Cody Barton, who's going to be on special teams. You know, that, that was a, an, a definite focus when it came to the draft this year.
1: Great point. I think another under talked about sort of emphasis for the off season and uh, roster building was probably getting better at stopping the run. So while, while the lack of pass rush, which is something we'll come on to is, you know, a bit of a concern, they do seem, uh, to have drafted a type of defensive end and they seem to have bolstered the middle as well. And they've they've got one of the deepest linebacker groups in the league. They seem to have got better at stopping the run from a personnel standpoint. And when they scheme a bit more, I think they will be a very good run defense.
0: Yeah. That would be something they need to build off from last year. The pass rush though, something you mentioned and they may be looking to generate more of a pass rush with their corners, maybe moving their safeties up into the box, and we saw on the Vikings' first touchdown of the night that corner blitz by Jamar Taylor, not successful. Uh, instead, a touchdown to Smith, the tight end. And I, you brought up, you praised some of the the TV coverage earlier on the Amadi hit. But the TV guys were saying it was a busted coverage on that play, even coming back from the commercial. But it was Jamar Taylor coming in for the corner blitz that uh, it got picked up and just made for an easy touchdown by the Vikings.
1: So I I do think they were correct in saying there's a busted coverage. To me, that looked like uh, what Pete Carroll, I believe, would call red two bracket L.A. Well, that's just a fancy name for cover two, but we're in the red zone slash at the goal line. So we're going to play things a bit tighter. Now, the essence, I'd say, is, is either. it was either Marquise Blair's fault. Mm. He was the backside's uh, sort of deep half safety. You know, if you think about cover two with two deep half players, Marquise Blair was one of those. Now, if they were blitzing, you'd think Marquise Blair would think, oh, I need to pick up Irv uh, Smith Jr., who was the number three receiver. Receiver numbering being... Number one on the outside, number two in the middle, number three on the inside. Now, I don't think Blair was going to do that because he didn't look there at all. He clearly hadn't been told, oh, we're sending seven guys on this play. Now, Think about that. I don't think Seattle would ever send seven on a play. That seems very extreme, even at the goal line. And I think the guy whose fault it probably was, and it would have been nice if Pete Carroll had been asked about this, was I think it was Cody Barton's fault, an inside linebacker. Either he or Taylor shouldn't have blitzed. And the fact that Taylor blitzed, given he's a corner, so he's always thinking coverage, shows that I think it was called a nickel blitz and Barton blitzed anyway, Mm. when really in this red two, cover two, tight defense, with the middle of the field open, because you've got Blair and another half player, the inside linebacker has to help out and cover that middle area of the field, specifically that number three receiver. Barton decided to blitz and Blair didn't realize, he he clearly didn't know because he was looking at the the backside receiver the single receiver so it ended up uh, smith no one had covered him and he was wide open but like i said i think i think barton busted the coverage by blitzing when i think he should have uh, taken the number 3 receiver
0: good see this is the kind of breakdown that we need on the tv uh, coverage I, it just seemed all too simple when uh, <laughs> the, the way they were talking about oh, oh busted coverage touchdown yeah. vikings it's it's uh, <laughs> it no
1: it happens <laughs> <laughs>
0: But one of the other highlights uh, while we're on the topic of defense, Deshaun sheds pick six and you did a nice little write up about that on field goals. Let's, let's talk about what you saw when Deshaun shed and in his 88 yard interception return, the only touchdown for the night for the Seahawks.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it was, it was impressive, wasn't it? One of the few fun plays from a Seahawks perspective and one of them where the coverage was executed correctly, uh, the Vikings came out in a trips bunch formation uh, in shotgun. So they had three receivers uh, to the right of quarterback Sean Mannion in a bunch. Now, Mannion's thinking there is no way on earth Seattle is going to play man coverage against this look. Because with a bunch, it's so hard to play just straight up man coverage. Because, you know, if all the receivers are close together, how on earth is a cornerback going to try run through all this all this uh, trash, basically? It's, it's very difficult. But the Seahawks did uh, play man coverage and they did it from a too high look. So they had both of their safeties start high, including Deshaun Shedd. However, after the snap, Mannion, who saw his receiver breaking what looked like fairly open across the middle, because Shaquille Griffin, who was tasked of being in man coverage on this receiver, he couldn't get round the other two in the bunch. They'd sort of cleared him out. So Mannion thought, oh, that guy's going to be open. Shed is a, a deep half player, and I'm just going to throw this route. What actually happened was Shed was rotating down, and he was tasked with basically robbing any of those sort of intermediate crossing routes. On the other safety, Tedrick Thompson was rotating deep to the deep middle third. So it was a cover one man defense. Down came Deshaun Shed. Manion threw the ball he, he assumed that it was going to be uh, zone coverage because of that trips bunch that I mentioned. However, it was man to man. Mannie had thought he'd keep running. He threw the ball, and rather than throwing it to Beebe, it was Deshaun Shedd Shed. There and Sean Shed ran all the way back for a lovely touchdown. Uh, another thing about that play, which was nice, was Cassius Marsh. He was uh, lined up inside on like, the rush package mm-hmm. because it was a third and seven. Marsh was sort of lined up inside shoulder of the tackle, which is. You know, what coaches call a four eye technique. And he showed nice quickness. I think we'll see Seattle put him inside a lot on passing downs. He did that in his first year, and of course, uh, his first time in Seattle. And of course, it was different because they had then Cliff Averill, Michael Bennett, uh, Frank Clark. So, you know, slightly different, but slightly he still different. did fairly well. <laughs> uh, he did fairly well making life for Sean Mannion a tiny bit uncomfortable, even if it was more of a second effort win than a first effort win. But anyway, uh, Deshaun Shedd, lovely pick six. Mannion thinking it was a too high zone defense uh, and BB clearly thinking it was zone or, or adjusting because it was a blitz. And actually, Deshaun shed was robbing the play. It was man to man with shed as a, a rat, a zone defender robbing the intermediate middle of the field. And shed picked it off and got a nice touchdown and put the Seahawks in front. Which uh, you know that that was nice. Yeah, they
0: weren't in front uh, for much longer. With the Vikings being able to come back down and tie it up and and take the lead into the second half, and with Lynch pretty ineffective, it it wasn't looking all that great. They had a they had a chance to get it close toward the end, but let's stick with the defensive backs because my big question with Deshaun Shed his versatility. It's you have to think that the Seahawks find a way to keep him on the team because he can play uh, the backup role at corner. He can play a backup role at safety. The Seahawks, though, they have so many options at safety with Bradley McDougal and Tedrick Thompson, the presumed starters. You have Delano Hill, who has a little bit of starting experience from last year. You got Shalom Luani, Marquise Blair, who went out with back spasms. Uh, I don't know if we have an update on him of how long he might be out, but uh, then you have Ugo Amadi at safety too. And and so it feels like you have a very crowded group at safety. What are you seeing from that group? And how do you think that could play out as we go in the preseason?
1: Well, I think Shed they clearly love him. He's a versatile guy. He's been I love in the Shed. System we, we should all love I, Shed. <laughs> yes, sorry, sorry. I think Shed they clearly love him, and I clearly love him, and you clearly love him, and there we, we clearly <laughs> love him. Everyone loves him. No, he is great. Uh, it's it's been fun seeing him back in Seals colours, uh, and he does clearly. He, it's it's so valuable when you've got a uh, you know a Maddy, um, Blair and some you know, rookie sort of presence and a lack of real veterans given Tedrick Thompson's still fairly young and hasn't really grown that much into a leadership role by all accounts. And you've uh, got also Delano Hill. Oh, sorry. It's just Lano Hill, isn't it? Lano Hill. Lano yeah. Hill. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lano Hill. Um, he's, you know, still fairly young, never probably grew into that leadership role. Um, It's nice having a guy who knows the defense. He's been in Detroit where he's learned different styles of matching coverage under Matt Patricia like a Patriots sort of style of play. And now he's back with a high football IQ, uh, seems a likable chap and just knows his stuff. And interesting that even, albeit in the preseason, he came in as that dime defensive back, so that sixth defensive back. When Bradley McDougald got an early rest, Mm -hmm. he was the guy to replace him. So he's basically the third the first man up in the safety room but ideally i think you want him as a sort of big nickel type he matches up with tight ends covers them that's why patricia looks to him and obviously with his cornerback background shed is really suited to matching up with guys aside from that i think he's more of a box safety so a guy who comes down closer to the line of scrimmage and plays the run uh turns back the run most of the time in seattle's defense or, or occasionally will play an interior gap mainly the a gap but you kind of want him to do that more than he doesn't really have range on the on the back end well much range or as much range as you'd want from a guy tasked with covering the entire deep middle third of the field the other safeties are interesting because uh you know there's the skill sets are quite raw um marquise blair looks like a guy who he can hit obviously we saw that in week one uh he's very fast he's aggressive he wants to make plays be around the ball and and he did get the ball later in that game with that booming hit even if he didn't go near foot near shoulder strike he went uh with his far shoulder which got his head across the body right. and uh, they threw the flag on it so he's a he's a guy who i think pete thinks he can mold into any skill set he wants um and he is a playmaker. He just might take a year or so uh, carted off with back spasms in the game. Uh, and hopefully he's OK because, you know, they don't sound too fun, but could have been worse.
0: Right. Yeah. When the cart comes out, it, you you start to worry for sure. And, you know, with him being the second round pick that you do have that expectation that, you know, he could challenge for one of those starting spots in terms of coaching. I think we can look at the way Pete Carroll coached up Earl Thomas and maybe look toward Blair and say he sees a guy who has all the tools in Marquise Blair. And he just needs that coaching to really get him to where Pete Carroll wants him to, to perform.
1: Yeah, exactly that. Uh, I'm actually going to write. An, well, I'm in the process of writing an article on uh, the difference. Uh, well, the crisis I've branded it facing Seattle's middle of the field closed defense. Mm. When with their cover three, they want that middle of the field safety to close the middle of the field. And Seattle's really big on no seam routes and no post routes being allowed. Right. What Thomas was so good at is even when the offense had three receivers to one side of the field and then one receiver on the other side, so trips. Mm-hmm. Even when Seattle flooded the coverage, so what they do is that middle third becomes more like a quarter pushed to the three-receiver side. So it's it's, it's kind of middle of the field open. Thomas, though, he managed to make the middle of the field still look closed. He's managed to play the middle of the field, which helped out the cornerback on the single-receiver side. He managed to help that guy out and then run around to the three receivers and still make the required play that he was asked to make. Right. Now, what Thompson does is he just plays his assignment dead on. He just plays his assignment, which is his trips. I'm going to move slightly to the trip side, play more of a quarter zone rather than a middle third. And I'm just going to play that number two receiver vertical, right? The middle receiver uh-huh. in that in those three receivers and that's all he does and you know yes in the playbook that's that's probably and on the on the uh, on the practice field and in the film room that's probably how they, they're taught but it that really does leave that backside cornerback all alone for the entire play on an island and I think this year Quarterbacks are going to pick up on that, and I think they're really going to start hitting that. Mm. Uh, And which which you, which is why you might see Seattle have a a safety stay too high and play next to Thompson rather than being down in the box. Sure. Um, I'll illustrate all of this in the article and explain it in much more detail. Uh, I hope I haven't lost anyone. Yeah, well, that's
0: always, you know, when you go in those deep dives in terms of X's and O's, you know, those those really long form articles where you can really see where guys are lined up. It definitely helps. So people need to look for that at FieldGoals.com coming up. And I feel like we've saved maybe one of the best performances of the night or maybe just favorite performance of the night because we haven't talked about Puna Ford yet, Maddie. Yeah,
1: wow. Uh he obviously has a massive, massively more important role in his second year as a pro, mainly because he finally managed to earn the trust of Pete Carroll uh, uh, last year. It seemed to take him a while. It seemed Pete Carroll still couldn't quite get over the fact this guy's so short, yet can play defensive tackle really well still. What the hell? It's almost like... Especially Pike when you have him. a guy
0: that, who, who is so short on the other side of the ball that he decided to start in year one of his NFL career. How could you not <laughs> see this with Buda Ford?
1: Yeah, he likes those tall dudes to try to swat the ball down. But <laughs> as a guy who's five foot nine, I am. Um, I respect Puna Ford. Yeah, do it for the short guys. But uh, yeah, but also he's he's massively important, of course, because Jaron Reed has his suspension, and it, the defensive tackle depth after those two is sort of. Uh, I don't, uh, have you have you played in the NFL? I don't I don't really know who you are. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure some of those guys will come good. But I, I have to admit, I hadn't really heard of many of them. Before we've, we've seen him in the preseason. And yeah, so Puna Ford, what a game he had. Uh, the starters got a bit more of a run and he was just disrupting everything. Um, Seattle was moving their line laterally on stunts and getting them to penetrate. And Ford was great at that. He was, you know, squeezing between double teams and anchoring well. Uh, he was really impressive and just gets you excited and a bit more optimistic about Jaron Reed's absence. And I'd really like to see what Ford can do from a pass rushing standpoint, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting. He, I think big second year for him and hopefully far more snaps and reps.
0: Yeah, I was disappointed that he had that forced fumble taken off the board right at the beginning that would have given the Seahawks the ball inside the 10-yard line early on. Uh, the officials decided to call uh, a stopped forward progress, which... Uh, I guess when you're tackling a guy in the backfield, that's usually when you stop his progress Uh, and uh, apparently stripping the ball while you're taking him down. uh, That was a confusing call to me, but uh, I I guess it's preseason and officials can make mistakes
1: too. Yeah, that was definitely preseason officiating. And then, uh, that uh, it's like Jazz Ferguson's fumble should have been forward progress if they were yeah. Right. If they were, yeah, <laughs> if they were doing stuff, if they were cool if they were just changing the ball, <laughs> it was very odd. If uh, once the guy touches yeah, you
0: but, and and wraps you up, that that means forward progress has stopped. That you can't strip the ball after that. Yeah, that, that should be consistent.
1: Yeah, we're not going to blow a whistle to tell you that forward progress has been stopped, but we are <laughs> we are when you review the fumble and we uh, the entire. Uh, stadium, uh, viewers on TV, um, broadcasters think it's a fumble. Then we're going to say, Oh yeah, actually. Yeah. Sorry. Forward progress had been stopped.
0: See, I look at plays like that and I say, you know what? We, yeah, we lost by six points. But if if they call that correctly, Seahawks win that game. So, yeah, you know, that,
1: that cost us a
0: valuable win. A va- we could have been two and zero in the preseason like the Vikings. <laughs> and uh, oh, well, it, uh, we, we got to see takeaways from this game. We'll close out with that. I have an idea, I think, of where the Seahawks are going to go in terms of their wide receivers. I feel like there's a better picture for that. We got an idea of the offensive line, the, those guys coming back, and when you just add Mike Ewotty to that mix, that they're going to be even better. So they were fine with Posick. We got to see some time for Russell in the pocket, and those, and and clearly Chris Carson, the number one running back. So anybody who's taking Rashad Penny in your fantasy team, uh, simply as uh, anything other than you know just a handcuff running back for Chris Carson in case he gets injured. You've you've made a mistake
1: yeah uh i think they're good takeaways also think the defensive i think depth overall is quite a concern uh it would be unusual for schneider not to make a sort of bold move like he always does um, given the resources they still have in 2020 uh, from a draft pick standpoint and also cap space uh and the defensive line it it didn't look great even with the vikings throwing the ball very quickly often mm-hmm. it just it just looked a bit weak and guys like um jamie medder who impressed me in the first game uh i didn't really see much of him uh maybe that's because they're they're throwing it quickly uh austin Calitro, uh, you know just missing missing certain plays getting on the wrong side of blocks not really recognizing blocks uh barton i think could be a real player but uh uh, he has a few rookie moments of inexperience and Ben burke Irvin, when he took a t- uh, timeout um, and Bobby Wagner was seen sort of grinning and laughing with Russell Wilson on the sideline and then shaking his head, like because uh, burke Irvin couldn't line them up. That was a funny moment, but also a sign that, you know, there's a lot of inexperience. Uh, and then finally cornerback Akeem King got absolutely roasted by Laquan Treadwell and you know he got he got some first team reps um, last week with the um, uh, left cornerback over Shaquille Griffin but I think we can say that's probably over Uh, he got toasted and I think just the overall takeaways depth is a bit worrying but then if you get injuries in the NFL you're pretty much scuffed anyway so yeah we, we have to wait to see how the draft picks fully pan out. Well, Maddie Brown,
0: thanks for joining me on the show this week. We'll we'll look forward to you coming on maybe throughout the season and uh appreciate you coming on and breaking down the Seahawks 25 to 19 loss over the Vikings.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Uh, yeah, definitely want to come on
0: during the season. So, thank you. Thanks once again to Maddie for coming on the show and be sure and check out fieldgoals.com. A couple things that we didn't get to during the show that are covered on field goals. Kenneth Arthur breaks down the fact that will Disley was on the field for the first time in almost a year. He didn't have any catches, but he was on the field for 15 snaps. So check out Kenneth Arthur's article on that. And I know we saved it for the end. So if you didn't get enough Puna Ford talk, there is more at fieldgoals.com. An article from Tyler Olson looking at some of the highlights from Ford's game against the Vikings. And lastly, check out John Gilbert's article as he breaks down how each of the Seahawks rookies fared in preseason week two. It's all up there. FieldGoals.com.